The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. First, I just really want to thank all of the sponsors of the Socialism Conference, which includes Haymarket Books, the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, the International Socialist Organization, Socialist Worker Newspaper, and Jacobin Magazine.
Burmese comrades in our common struggle. And where? India. India. And I think this was exemplified by many panels, including the one on the global women's resistance, which has been just such an inspiration this year. And I just want to say that a conference like this doesn't just happen. Um, it is a lot of hard work. There was a conference, and I'm not going to thank everybody because I just can't be done, but there was a conference organizing committee um, that spent months organizing this. Um, a special shout out to our AV team who made sure that every session was recorded and will be available on wearemany.org starting later this summer. to listen to it later. Um, so it's really just been uh, incredible and it's, it's an incredible amount of work. And Todd Cretion said something yesterday in his meeting um, that I thought was really important. He said, you can't, if you make a revolution halfway, you don't get half of what you want. You get fascism. Or you get neoliberalism, which then leads to fascism. And so if you're going to fight, you better be prepared to win. And I think that that's what this conference is about, is organizing our side. So we have two incredible speakers, but we have a couple of announcements that I'm going to go through first. Um, the first is that I just want to mention, I want to pay tribute for a moment to a comrade that we lost way too young this spring, John Holden of the Bay Area, um, who we lost on April 6th, who was a young man who had gotten radicalized by the Sanders campaign and then joined the International Socialist Organization immediately threw himself um, into activity, organizing on any, every front possible. He was set to graduate from San Francisco State University this spring um, and had a scholarship to go to law school to become a social justice lawyer. And unfortunately, he was taken from us too young. Um, but I just wanted to take a moment um, to pay tribute to him and say that we will all carry him and all our other lost comrades in our hearts as we continue this struggle and this fight. So if you can with me say, John Holden, presente. Thank you. The second um, greeting I want to give is from Anand Gopal, um, who is a journalist who was supposed to speak on the revolution and counter-revolution in Syria. And I know a lot of you probably really wanted to hear that. And he is heartbroken to have not been at this conference. Uh, he was detained at the border and his passport held for 11 days. Um, that's what happens when you travel as an unembedded journalist who is not going with the US military or the Syrian regime powers, but getting the truth out about what's going on on the ground. But he did, he is out and he is safe and he sent us. <laughs> and he sent us this message. I was heartbroken to not be with you all this year, but I am grateful to be able to bring you revolutionary greetings from inside Syria. The situation there is difficult. Revolutionary forces are heavily outnumbered against the Assad regime, foreign imperialisms, and local fundamentalists. In fact, the first revolutionary wave in the Arab world is probably over. But the underlying causes, inequality and dictatorship, continue, which means that the revolutionary wave will crest again. And when it does, the memory of struggle that is alive in activists inside Syria and in refugee camps will be crucial. And that's where we come in. I told my Syrian friends that in a country awash with armed fanatics, fundamentalists, and a strongman ruler, I'm speaking here, of course, of America, <laughs> there are vibrant pockets of resistance, like the Socialism Conference. They were inspired and emboldened and felt that they were not alone. And so on their behalf, I convey this message of solidarity from Syrian revolutionaries to their brothers and sisters in the United States. Now, more than ever, we have a world to win. So now, I just want to call Alan Moss up to the, um, to the podium. How many people have gotten a chance to see the new website for socialistworker.org? about that 
that project. So I'm going to turn it over to Alan Moss, editor of Socialist Worker. So um, it does sound like everyone's seen the new socialistworker.org. Um, I want to thank right away the people who made it most possible. That's Derek Wright, Zakia Kaber, and Jeff Bailey, who are our design team. I've been constantly admiring the new website for the past month. Um, but the thing is that in admiring how good it looks, I've also seen the thing that has been the strength about Socialist Worker for the past 41 years, which is that it's been able to give voice to the struggle and to socialism in this country. If you look at the top of the website right now, you'll see an article coming uh, of a roundup of reports from the June 30 uh, uh, mass protests against uh, the kidnapping of children and, and uh, uh, Trump's, Trump's policy. And there were reports from right around the country giving you a sense of just how active the International Socialist Organization and all socialists and, left, uh, and, and activists today are around that. If you look a little further down on the, the homepage right now, you'll get just a taste of our coverage of the fantastic rebellion of teachers in this country that's taken place. It's been a part of our conference all the way along. You know, I don't can't I can't remember just how many articles that we've had about the Red State Rebellion of Teachers. Eric Blanc and I were mutually admiring the coverage that we've had at Jacobin and at Socialist Worker over uh, uh, the other night. I think it's really true that our organizations and our publications have stepped up to the task of giving voice to this incredible new uh, uh, struggle. But the thing that I also think about is that that kind of coverage has been a part of socialist worker for all of its 41 years. If you go back and get a chance to see the early issues of Socialist Worker, you'll see covers about a different trip to West Virginia that was made by what it's one of its first editors, Ahmed Shawkey, uh, to report on the struggle of coal miners, you know, and with a different reception and a different period of a very difficult struggle and a set of, of, uh, uh, of, of defeats by that, but really trying to give voice to that incredible uh, struggle that was at the heart of the founding of our organization the International Socialist Organization. We've done that for the war zone strikes in Illinois, for the UPS strike of 1997, and for the one-day political mass general strikes that were the mega marches of 2006 to fight for immigrant rights. I was also thinking about um, this beautiful cover designed by Eric Reuter a couple years ago that uh, came out after the murder of Trayvon Martin by a vigilante in Florida and it had the iconic picture of Trayvon that we all know looking straight into the camera and as a halo around his head many of the other victims of vigilantes and racists in this country and it chokes me up to think about it. Um, but that was um, uh, an illustration for an article by Lee Suster that was called The Many Other Trayvons. And that was a list of all of the people uh, uh, who had been, uh, or some of the people who had been uh, victims of, of the police and vigilantes from Eleanor Bumpers to Michael Stewart, Abner, Lee, uh, uh, Abner uh, Luima. And as much as it was a documentation of the barbarism of police and vigilantes in this country, it was also a documentation of the the resistance against that, of the struggle against that, of all the struggles that we've been involved in and that you read about in Socialist Worker. And there's, there's so many examples of that, but that, it, it, that SW has been a, uh, the expression of the ISO's commitment to be participants in every struggle around and to make sense of that, to make it a part of the rich tradition of socialism and Marxism that exists in this country and that we can bring to bear now on the new challenges that we face in the uh, emergence of uh, 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 a, a new left. And now we have a cool website to, to, to do with that, that project. And I do want to also say that we have another project associated with Socialist Worker, and that's the Mighty Better Off Red. Um, I was going to 
I was going to make it. I was thinking about making a joke that now you don't even have to read the socialist analysis. But I was thinking because I've listened to Better Off Red and had to listen so intently that I had to stop and rewind to make sure that I got all of the political analysis out of it, and it led me to new books, new articles to read to to bring into our analysis. Those things are incredible tools for us and great advances, but we do have a job to do. There's no sugarcoating it, but socialist workers readers online have dropped over the past several years. They are not as many as they were even a few years ago. And uh, part of this is because of the evil internet, um, you know, uh, uh, Facebook algorithm that we face and all of those things that are actually uh, harming uh, media in, in a whole number of ways, both mainstream and independent uh, media. But I also think that in an era of social media and all of the other things that we have on our plate, it may have fallen away, the idea that you need to read what's in Socialist Worker just like you need to read what's in the publications of the left in this country in order to be a part of the activities. We need to get Socialist Worker in front of people's eyes. I, this is my slogan. Now that people can read SocialistWorker.org, people need to read SocialistWorker.org. We need to figure out how we can do that. One thing I'll tell you right now is if you want to take out your phones and sign up for a daily reminder to read Socialist Worker, go to SocialistWorker.org slash email and sign up for our daily alerts. But I'd also like to take all the, all the folks in this audience, whether you're members of the ISO uh, or, or not, to make a solemn vow to put Socialist Worker on your list of things to do right away in the morning with brushing your teeth, with getting your coffee, and reading your Socialist newspaper. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Alan Moss. Let's hear it again for Socialist Worker. One of the highlights of this weekend was getting to hear the striking teachers um, at the Teachers Rebellion panel. Their movement has inspired all of us, and we all know Red for Ed. Um, but now I want you to hear about Red for Med. So can our nurses, Tristan Aidy and Elizabeth Lalash, please come up? briefly the other night, um, uh, nurses in Burlington, Vermont are looking at going on strike this coming Thursday. Um, um, I should say my name is Kristen Aidy. I'm a nurse practitioner in the Vermont Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals. There are 1,800 of us in our bargaining unit and we've been bargaining since March with a hospital that is actually the second largest employer in the state and the largest private employer. Last, May, last year they made $69 million in profits even though they're a nonprofit. They have a CEO who made $2.1 million a couple of years ago, the last time that uh, such figures were available. Um, after we concluded our last negotiations three years ago, our last contract, um, we, we were told that during those negotiations that no money had been budgeted for raises for RNs. And then a couple months later, they released figures for the CEO of the company, and they gave him a half a million dollar raise that year. That is spending $189 million to build a brand new building, but they have no plans to hire more people to staff it. This is a company that spent $8 million on rebranding itself with a brand new name. This is a company that's spending $4 million to create new offices for their executives downtown. They're going to spend an extra million dollars a year on, on parking for those people. Um, and at the same time, we are among the lowest paid nurses in the state. Uh, the nurse practitioners are the lowest paid in the whole region by a lot. And as it turns out, Vermont itself is 47th in the country when it comes to RNK. So if you're thinking about what drove the, the Red Rebellion, or rather the Teachers' Rebellion um, in the Red States, 
And that sense of, of feeling like you're just getting left behind over and over again, the same thing applies to Vermont with the caveat that we also have the biggest gap between the cost of living and wages. So 47th in the country for wages and yet one of the highest costs of living that you can imagine in the country. Um, so uh, we took the decision a couple of weeks ago to hold a strike authorization vote. And despite the hospital not allowing us to vote on site, which meant we were literally spray painting ballot boxes red and meeting people in parking lots, 94% of our coworkers voted to strike. because of those figures I threw out, but also because we have a, a terrible staffing crisis on our hands. Our company pays, our hospital pays so little that it's very hard to attract and hold on to other nurses. At any given time, we have between 130 and 180 vacancies. We see hundreds of, of positions for support staff go unfilled so that nurses are routinely doing billing and coding rather than being at the bedside with their patients. They're routinely doing laundry, they're routinely, routinely cleaning rooms, and so on. So one of the things that we voted on as a bargaining team in our union was not only a high a demand for a, a raise for nurses, but actually for support staff. We said we want $15 an hour. everybody who works at this hospital, despite the fact that none of those folks are in our union, and we want it. We wanted it to be clear from the very beginning that this is a fight not just for nurses, not just about wages, but this is a fight for the kind of health care that our community deserves. tomorrow of unions throughout the region who are pledging solidarity with our strike and it's going to be held at the local fire station. <laughs> so you get a sense that people get it and they have our backs and so when we go out on, on strike this Thursday we're asking everybody to come out in solidarity with us and that's what Elizabeth is going to talk about. So I'm Elizabeth, I'm uh, an RN here in Chicago, I'm a unionized nurse, and um, there's a group of us that met last night, we were in part of the healthcare working group, um, which has been meeting since last fall around its union and non-union healthcare workers to figure out what to uh, do around that work, and obviously we decided last night to meet to organize and put out to the organization how we want to build solidarity and national solidarity for this strike. I don't know if people caught it, but Bernie Sanders actually did a press conference um, in Burlington. I know the nurses uh, pushed him to do that, and it's actually a really, it's in last Thursday, uh, a good press conference really talking about how, what Tristan said, the lack of prioritization for both the nurses, their pay, and the patients that they take care of. Um, and I think, you know, that seems to connect the 47th in the country. I was involved in the work going to Oklahoma and meeting the teachers there in that state. And I think that, you know, we want to take a page from that work that we did in solidarity. And so the working group um, is calling for a national, it's hashtag Red for Med National Solidarity Facebook event that we want to have everyone participate in. If people didn't do that, we did that for Oklahoma, Arizona, North Carolina, um, which is what you do. It's going to be on Thursday. They're going to be on starting strike this coming Thursday and Friday. It is also quite likely that they may get locked out on Saturday, so we want to actually show a, a big show of support and solidarity. So what you do is you post pictures to this Facebook page. I'm working with people in the uh, working group about getting that launched by tomorrow, tomorrow night. Um, and we're also, people should know, uh, we reached out to our comrades in DSA who are in labor work. Um, who are here at the conference about seeing about do, making this a joint effort. Um, so I think that's really positive and pushing it out nationally. So what branches should do and individuals, we want to push it out into our unions. And we ask the teachers, I know it's summer break, but you can take that red that you have, and we know you all have it, you know, put it on, you can take a picture and post it. You can even, you know, I don't know if you're teaching summer school, anything like that, 
you know, um, and, and just post the pictures up to show solidarity with the Vermont nurses. Um, and then, you know, we will also, you know, just that'll start on Thursday. And we'll, we'll put out the announcement and the Facebook page via the notes and get it out into unions and individuals. You know, nurses are, you know, you know, the popularity of nurses over the last, I don't know, decade. We're voted as being the, the um, most popular or most trusted profession in the country. I think a lot of people will feel the issue around healthcare. So people should do that. One last tiny thing once we push this out is to say that we have some comrades that are going to be going up to Vermont. Um, Donna Stern, who's with uh, Massachusetts. <laughs> Nurses Association is going to be going up there with some of her co-workers. They're going to be taking the inflatable fat cat <laughs> on caravan, which is a big fat cat with a cigar. If it's voted on by the Vermont, if it's okay, and you should look on the Facebook page to see the caravan going up to show solidarity and support for the Vermont nurses. Thank you so much. I know we need you wait patiently for our speakers. We got one more announcement and then we're going to get going. But um, the Center for Economic Research and Social Change, CIRSC, has played such an invaluable role in the left over the last many years. I can't actually remember the founding year. I feel like it's been a while. Um, but the Haymarket Room, if you went to the Lit Room and you saw all the books, that's CIRSC. Um, this conference, CIRSC is part of putting that on. If you've attended any of the events in cities around the country where you've heard incredible speakers, um, that is the work of Center, the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. And I want to just welcome Anthony Arnove to make a brief announcement about that work. Jen, Jen just made my announcement for me. So I, I'm just going to say uh, very briefly that, you know, as, as Anand Gopal said, we, we have a world to win. We have a vision that was so eloquently and inspirationally articulated in so many meetings this weekend. And it's going to take the individuals in this room going back and organizing to bring that vision about. It's also going to take resources. It's going to take money. It's going to take donations. Um, and so you will see around the room now, coming around with these white boxes, um, some comrades who are going to ask for your support. And we would encourage you to throw some dollars in, uh, write a check to CERSC, C-E-R-S-C, um, and if you're able to make a larger donation, or if there's someone in your family, or a friend, or a supporter, or someone who's inspired by the work that we do but couldn't be in the room today, talk to them about making a larger donation to CERSC at our website, CERSC.org. And if you go there, there's a donate button. Any donation to CERSC is tax deductible, and we do rely on people giving larger donations to sustain this work. The International Socialist Review is hoping to relaunch a new website built by the amazing team that brought us the new Socialist Worker website. So that's a really important project that we want to support. WeAreMany.org, which as Jen mentioned, is going to be bringing the audio and video from this weekend and from all the other socialism conferences and from so many other events. We want to relaunch that website as well and, and bring that to a new generation of people coming into struggle. Haymarket, so many of the projects of CERSC need your support, need your solidarity. So please give what you can today. Consider becoming a sustaining donor uh, and consider uh, reaching out to those people who might be in a position to make those larger contributions, those foundation grants, to help build the struggle for the years to come. Thank you. more happy and more proud to introduce our first speaker, Sharon Smith. She has been a leading member of the International Socialist Organization almost from its earliest beginnings, or from its earliest beginnings. Um, Megan Day said something yesterday in a meeting I was in where she said, we need to steward this generation of radicals through this moment. And I just want to say that Sharon has played an invaluable role in stewarding 
our organization through the last 40 years so that we could emerge in this moment to play a vital role. She is the author um, of Women and Socialism, the updated version of which I think started a whole conversation in our organization about black feminism, intersectionality, social reproduction, important concepts we've been grappling with over the last several years. She is also the author of Subterranean Fire, a history of working class radicalism in the United States that is indispensable reading for the current working class radicalism in the United States. This is a fully expanded and updated edition, and it has also been translated into Spanish. You should get it. You should do reading groups. You should organize around it, because it's such an invaluable contribution. So please welcome Sharon Smith to the podium. It's the least I can do for Jen. So, um, can you hear me okay? Great, okay. Well, all weekend long, we've been talking about the lessons that we learned from the teacher's strike wave. All weekend long, and for a very good reason. They showed us all how to go on strike and win. And that, And that is a lesson that has been mostly missing for the US working class in these four decades. But I want to add another lesson that anyone who was really paying attention should also have learned. It's no accident that the teachers from the coal counties in the southern part of West Virginia played such a key role in starting and sustaining the teacher strike in that state. As we know, many commentators have taken to ridiculing these communities, including coal mining communities, as Trump country, without regard to their strong union traditions and traditions of class consciousness. There's a reason why Bernie Sanders won in the West Virginia primary, even if the state went to Trump in the general election. Even in McDowell County, West Virginia, one of these uh, counties that's gotten a lot of attention from the mainstream media, um, where voters in that, yeah, they gave Trump a 74% margin of victory over Clinton. This is true. However, it turns out that most working class voters did not participate in the election. Author Elizabeth Cad, who is actually from Appalachia, she said, it is not immaterial to me that Trump won McDowell County during an election that had a historically low voter turnout for the county. With 17,508 registered voters, only 27% of McDowell County residents voted for Trump. That is just like the rest of the country. Now, Kat, she also added, again, she's from there. She says that depicting these, these communities as quote-unquote Trump country erases much of their actual populations. Here's the quote. According to the bulk of coverage, non-white people, anyone with progressive politics, those who care about the environment, LGBTQ individuals, young folks, and a host of others do not exist in Appalachia. And we, we need to change that. So when we're thinking about elections, we need to examine not only who wins, but also who votes and who doesn't vote as part of our analysis. And instead of disparaging those who don't vote, we need to understand that the lower someone's income is, the less likely they are to vote. Not because they're stupid, but because they do not find the choice between Tweedledee and Tweedledum to be very compelling. As a great working class leader, Eugene Debs said all the way back in 1900, it is not that there are no differences between the Democrats and Republicans, but 
quote, the difference between the Republican and Democratic parties involve no issue, no principles in which the working class has any interest, end quote. why Eugene Debs, who was once a loyal member of the Democratic Party, went on to become a founding me member of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, and he ran for president five times on the Socialist Party ticket. Now, the way, the way Debs put it, and I, I really think you can't argue with his logic here, he said, quote, I'd rather vote for what I want and not get it then vote for what I don't want and get it. Now, I know, I know that the Democratic Party is the subject of much debate among socialists right now. And it's a really good debate and a really important debate. And I know that many socialists think that we can use the Democratic Party to win socialism or even use the Democratic Party to pave the way for a formation of a revolutionary party. Um, but the truth is, we won't be using the Democratic Party. They will be using us. While lots of progressive people are loyal Democrats, those who run the Democratic Party are loyal only to the capitalist class, and they will fight tooth and nail against any attempt to change that. We saw what the Democratic National Committee did to Bernie Sanders in 2016, and that needs to teach us something. There's a reason why the long-standing tradition of the revolutionary socialist movement is independence from all capitalist parties, not just here in the US, but around the world. And in this country, although the Democratic Party, since the time of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the Great Depression has sold itself as representing the interests of the working class, we need to be very clear about its history. First is the party of former slaveholders and Southern segregation, and even in the 1930s, the New Deal was actually a coalition, not only that included the capitalist class from the North, but also the capitalist class from the South, that is, Southern segregationists. The New Deal was never meant to include black workers and other workers of color. There is a reason why black workers referred to the National Recovery Act, the NRA, as, quote, the Negro robbed again. Because it paid black workers less than white workers throughout the South. So it's not that elections are, not, are unimportant. Of course they are. But any candidates we run have to be independent of the capitalist parties in order to advance the socialist movement. I know, I know the conventional wisdom is that it's unrealistic, even utopian to believe that we can build a third party in this country when the Democrats have the system all locked up. But we need to understand that back in 1935, when the class struggle was reaching its height, that the most militant workers, including the United Auto Workers, who were striking and winning, the delegates to the UAW convention voted to not endorse Democrat Franklin Delano Roosevelt for re-election, but instead to endorse a farmer labor party. And the only way that the CIO leadership was able to convince them to, to end up voting to endorse Roosevelt was to come in and threaten to withhold the strike fund if they didn't vote to endorse Roosevelt. And the Communist Party itself, the left alternative, also supported Roosevelt. So when the left claims that it's unrealistic to build a third party, we are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. And finally, and I know we've been quoting Howard Zinn all weekend, but this quote is so important, I'm going to repeat it again. 
when he said, quote, it's not who's sitting in the White House, but who's sitting in, in the streets, in the cafeterias, in the halls of government, in the factories, that brings about transformative change in society. And if the teacher's strike wave taught us anything this spring, is that massive class struggle, even when the deck is stacked against us, even when a strike is illegal, even when the government is filled with reactionaries, that solidarity can break through the barriers that seemed insurmountable only a few weeks earlier. The strike weapon is back, and what we have seen is that strikes not only spread solidarity between different groups of workers, like teachers, bus drivers, cafeteria workers in West Virginia, and also in Oklahoma, where steel workers refused to cross the teachers' picket line. strikes can be used to fight for social justice. Like at the University of California, where the strike this spring won a contract that includes gender-neutral bathrooms. Our movement is advancing to a new stage with a whole new set of debates and discussions. No longer are socialists in the position of arguing why socialism is better than capitalism. Because that argument has already been won for millions of people. Now we're in the position of debating what kind of socialism we're fighting for and how we can win that fight. All socialists stand in solidarity in this struggle. And an and advance for one wing of the socialist movement is an advance for all of us. Let's be clear, we can never forget that. But at the same time, we do have differences that we should continue to bait in a comradely and mutually respectful manner, as we have been doing this weekend. The German revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg once said that we will either end up with socialism or barbarism. And while child refugees are in cages, not just here in the US, but across Europe, and fascists are growing, not just here in the US, but even more so in Europe, it is obvious that we are rapidly edging toward barbarism. We don't have the luxury of waiting. There is no substitute and no shortcut to building an explicitly revolutionary socialist movement based on the self-emancipation of the working class when the future of humanity is at stake. Thank you. So, um, <laughs> so I, I had a long list of announcements. I forgot an important one. I just want to let people know. You try to do this. It's, it's, it's a lot of announcements. Um, that there are documentary filmmakers here making a movie called Socialism, the movie. Um, very exciting. And they've been filming throughout the weekend, and they're filming here today. Um, if you do not want to be, if you want to make sure that your face is not in the movie for some reason, um, Yael, who is here as the filmmaker, is up at, where are you? There she is. You can go speak to her, or you can check out more at Socialism, the movie. So, but thank you so much for being here, because I think that will be a great contribution. So, please stick around our next speaker because I just have two short, super short announcements, but I want to bring up our next speaker, Karee Peterson-Smith. He writes and speaks on U.S. empire, Palestine, solidarity, and black liberation. 
He's on the steering committee of the International Socialist Organization. I'm proud to call him my comrade. Please come up to Comrades, um, I want to leave you with honest words, which is to say that this has been an incredible weekend and a necessary weekend. We're leaving this conference and we're returning to a world where it is not the case that a room full of over a thousand people fired up after hearing an incredible panel of striking teachers then starts chanting, free Palestine. <laughs> That's a socialism thing. Socialism is a place where you come to hear militant teacher strike leaders and then leave chanting, Intifada, Intifada. <laughs> Someday, elsewhere, for now, here. Um, but more seriously, uh, not long after we left our conference last year, we had the horrific attack in Charlottesville where white supremacists, misogynist, fascists came to kill, and they did. And a week later, tens of thousands of people mobilized in Boston to drive them out of our city. And after that victory in Boston, the far right canceled 67 rallies that were part of those things happened. The nightmare in Charlottesville, and then a week later the victory in Boston. And an honest appraisal of this time that we find ourselves in needs both. It is the case that we have seen some of the largest and most inspiring mobilizations in U.S. history in the past year and a half. That is true. But it is also the case that those days and weeks of protests often feel like punctuation after stretches of assault and despair. If we only focus on the resistance, or if we only focus on the attacks, our picture of this time is incomplete, and we need both. But these things, the attacks and then the big protest waves, are the things that are visible. In many ways, some of the most significant political events unfolding in this country right now are things that are not so visible. They include incredible examples of solidarity, and ones that don't often make the mainstream media. For example, in April, in Greensboro, North Carolina, after a tornado hit that place, in particular devastated a black neighborhood that was abandoned by the city officialdom, it was immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, who mobilized with chainsaws and supplies and tools in a state where there was severe oppression from ICE, many of them facing deportation, they mobilized to help their black sisters and brothers. that in the mainstream media, I read that in Socialist Workers, so shout out to Socialist Workers. And shout out to the comrades in Greensboro who wrote that up. But if examples of solidarity like that are informed by something else, that this is a time for many people of revelation about what kind of world we live in, about what we're up against, about how history is made, and about the kind of world that we need. Though the people who run this society are trying to take things as far backward as they possibly can, there is forward motion, I would argue, in terms of the ideas that people are coming to and the conclusions that people are drawing. I am struck, for example, uh, by the fact that really just in the past couple of weeks, abolish ICE has become a demand in the mainstream a shout out to our comrades in the DSA in particular for their work in putting forward that demand. We are so proud of you and proud to have you at our conference and to be working together in solidarity. Now, 
abolish ICE is a nationwide conversation. Um, but you can get the richness of what all is happening politically, I think, when you zoom in more locally. And I just want to say a little bit about an amazing opportunity I had in the, this past year to go to West Virginia. Um, now, me and my comrade Dana arrived Monday night. Eric Blanc was already there. Our comrade Pranav drove down from Ohio the next morning. Shout out to Pranav. And uh, that morning, the strike ended. So we were there for a few hours. And that time in the state capitol changed my life. I didn't do anything. <laughs> But those few hours were transformative. So imagine the experience for the people who led that strike yeah. and for their families and their students and their communities. Now, I want to say a word about what was on my mind when I went into West Virginia. And for that, um, I want to talk a little bit about my mom. Uh, my comrade, Lupita. Uh, thanks for talking for my mom. Um, <laughs> Comrade Lupita talked about her parents. I'm going to talk about one of mine. Um, so my mom um, is, is like super sweet and very supportive of of, uh, of, of me um, and of our you know of us. Uh, and um, and like I'm not always the best at like calling her or texting her, and she's. Very busy. <laughs> my, my mom, um, my mom has learned like that if, if I don't call back or text back for a while to watch the news. <laughs> so so like I, I flew from Boston to Pittsburgh and then go into the car and drove into West Virginia. And as I was driving down, um, I, at one point I, I checked my text, not while driving, because don't check don't text while driving, so I pulled over. <laughs> and I saw a series of texts from my mom that were like, hey, Karee, hope you're doing well, give me a call. Hey, Karee, haven't heard from you in a while. Is everything okay? Are you in West Virginia? <laughs> I called my mom um, while I was driving at the hands-free device, it was totally safe. Uh, and um, and uh, I told her that I was indeed driving to West Virginia. And she was like, uh, who's in the car with you? Is it another person of color going with you to West Virginia? And I was like, I'm actually driving alone, uh, I said, as I saw the sun setting. Um, and I was like, but it's totally cool. I'm meeting up with uh, one of my comrades tonight. Um, and that'll be great. And, and my mom was like, is that person a person of color? And I was like, no, sh Dana, she's white, uh, but she's great. <laughs> and my mom said, you're going to West Virginia with a white woman? <laughs> I, I mean, it's it was... It's kind of funny, but it's, it's, it's actually really heavy, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was the conversation that, that we had um, when I was on my way to West Virginia. And, um, you know, when Dana and I walked into the Capitol uh, the next morning um, and saw this incredible crowd of teachers, um, and, you know, I was, by the way, I was wearing my backpack, which has, like, a patch on it that says Black Lives Matter with a Black Panther on it. So I was like, this is going to be really good or like really bad. <laughs> uh, and after kind of getting our bearings a little bit, this, this woman, a white woman, teacher named Terry walked up to me and she said, hey, I like your patch. And that was the beginning of our conversation. There was this moment where we were having a conversation and um, some of these teachers were telling us about not only what they were doing in the strike, but the history of 
uh, of their families fighting back. You know, and our comrade Pranav said, you know what, this is like when my grandmother, uh, you know, during the, when the British were colonizing India, you know, my grandmother joined other women in throwing the cooking oil out of the second story window onto the street so that the British, as they marched through, they would slip on the oil. <laughs> teacher we were talking to in West Virginia said, yeah, it's exactly like that, yeah. <laughs> so something is being opened up here. And by the way, that room in the Capitol was full of women, of course, who were leading this strike. And it was hundreds of people chanting, but at the front of the room leading the chants were black women. were a minority in that room, but they were leading the strike. That is what I saw in West Virginia. Now, one thing that, um, that uh, I also heard, I heard these incredible stories like this, um, this teacher from a different town uh, outside the Capitol is talking about how in her school, uh, you know, as they did in so many schools, they organized feeding people in their community because so many of the children in West Virginia depend on their schools actually to get their meals for the day. Um, and she talked about uh, how there was this guy, one of her co-workers, uh, who was a cafeteria worker, an older guy and a Trump supporter. And he was against the strike. And he never came to any of the activities. But as the strike went on, he approached her one day and he said, listen, um, I've got a bunch of food in the cafeteria and it's going to go to waste, so I want to help out. This is a Trump supporter. This is somebody, they hadn't talked politics before. They hadn't worked uh, uh, politically before. But things came together in the context of that strike. And the other thing that same teacher told me was, uh, this was on a Tuesday, she said, you know, yesterday we didn't have to feed our kids because actually our girls track team approached us and said, we want to feed our community on Monday. And so the students actually organized that. And I'm reminded. I'm reminded of what a comrade up here speaking from North Carolina said about how these strikes were not just a question of protest. These were, this was power. This was workers' power. People experienced their power, and they will not forget that. One thing I was surprised to see when I was down there was, you know, I expected that there to be a ton of people from the left from all over the country to be mobilizing to West Virginia to see what was going on. And I was surprised that actually there were very few people uh, from the outside uh, on the left down there. Now, since the strikes and since that, since that kind of beginning of the strike wave, uh, many of our comrades elsewhere on the left um, have worked alongside us to try to promote uh, the lessons from this strike, including our comrades at Labor Notes Conference this past year, our comrades in the DSA, uh, in unions, and in Jacobin, and so on. Um, but for us in the ISO, I think that, that, that this question of us responding very quickly and getting there right away, when in general, our left, and when I say our left, I'm talking about us too, because we are part of this thing. We are all part of the left. <laughs> Why, why were we among the few to get there first? Well, one is this is actually new for all of us. A statewide uh, uh, strike, then that wins. That's something new, but we can, we can get used to that. But the other thing is workers' power, that's our bread and butter. You know, and we don't get to see it every day. But what we're doing every day is preparing for those moments when we do get to see it. And that's what we need to do. I want to start to close by talking about that, because what we saw with people uh, in West Virginia not only striking and fighting uh, for their communities, but going well beyond the strike and feeding their communities and so on, this was a glimpse into what's possible. Those people should be running our whole society. Okay? And 
for that, we will need a revolution. And so I want to say a word about the road to revolution. Um, we are going to have opportunities and also real responsibilities to advance the politics of socialism uh, in this time. And there's a few things I want to say about that. One, along the way, we are going to have debates. We're going to have debates um, with comrades in other organizations on the left about how to advance the politics of socialism. And we're going to have debates within our organization as well. And in those, we will have comrades on different sides of debates who are equally committed to the socialist project and to building this organization. Um, and we will need to approach each other as such. Uh, we are going to have debates in which we are all trying to figure out how to genuinely advance the socialist struggle, make some decisions, and then move. Because at the end of the day, it's about moving forward. Now, that starting point is a simple truth. Um, and all, there, there's going to be a lot of questions that we'll have to figure out uh, together. But we are trying to build a culture of debate in which we take each other seriously as people who are committed to a project. That culture does not yet exist nearly enough in the society. It is a contribution that we seek to be part of making. Right. Number two, I mentioned that we will have not only opportunities but responsibilities. There are some struggles that will place challenges directly in front of us and become national conversations. There are others that we need to do what we can to make conversations. Let me get more specific. It is historic and long overdue that there is a new conversation about socialism here in this country, which finally brings us up to speed with literally the rest of the world. <laughs> but here, in the heart of global empire, too often, the politics of socialism, as with politics in general, are confined to domestic politics. We have to be anti-imperialists. conversation about what the U.S. is doing at the border yep. and the resistance that we are part of, there is not enough conversation about what the U.S. is doing beyond the border that makes people come here. And that's why I am so grateful to our comrades from around the world who made the trip uh, to being here at this conference. conference. And in particular, I want to shout out our comrades from Puerto Rico who came would have been incomplete without you, as the struggle here for socialism in the U.S. is incomplete without a conversation about Puerto Rico, without fighting for free Palestine, and without solidarity with the indigenous populations here in the Americas. <laughs> Last point. As we figure out our way forward, we need to think not only about what we are doing right now, but what we are doing for the future. I keep on thinking about this moment at the Women's March in Boston um, where there was a parent and a child walking by. They walked by in front of our, our lit table, and they were having a conversation that I just caught the tail end of. And the, the, the mom said, yeah, and so that's what interse intersexual feminism means. Yeah. <laughs> tremendously inspired by the people who are in this room, but when we're talking about the historic struggles to, to ahead of us to come, they will involve those of us in the room, but it will involve many people beyond this room. And the question is, the question is, what will be the political home? What will be the channel? What will be the vehicle, the revolutionary vehicle for the future? And that's what we have to build. Now I want to conclude by saying that I think that we have an opportunity in the coming years for revolution to be put back on the agenda. In between now and then, there will be opportunities like what happened in West Virginia and elsewhere. But those won't come every day. But again, what we do in the day-to-day -day prepares us for those moments. Because if this year has taught us anything, it is that what this ruling class is capable of and willing to do, there is no depth to their cruelty. But it has also taught us, uh, it has given us a taste of what we're capable of. And not just that we can fight, but that we can win.
The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.